Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with the leader of the New York City jazz outfit called Mostly Other People Do the Killing, Matthew Mappa Elliott. Over the course of our interview, he talked about the beginnings of the band from the Oberlin Conservatory days back in 1998 to the beginnings of the actual band in 2003. He talked about touring, their albums, the Ringo star of the band, what the future may be, along with much more. Dig this interview, my friends. Thank you for taking some time to talk with me. I appreciate it. Anytime. Shoot. Tell me what's been going on lately. Just kind of a synopsis, a short kind of what's going down with you guys. Well, we just got back from like uh, an October tour of Europe uh, where we, we played about, I don't know, 15 shows or so, which was great. And then after we got back in mid-October, uh, we rehearsed some new music that I wrote for the Septet version of the band that released the Red Hot record. And on last Friday, we did a gig here in New York with the Septet. And then last night, the quartet played at Cornelia Street, which was great. You know, kind of still doing material from the new record. And yeah, and that's, that's where we're at as of now. So when I see your name in print, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, you're right. Mostly other people do do the killing. Tell me, though, <laughs> how you guys came up with this name. Oh, it's, you know, I, I read it when I was in school in an article uh, and thought that, you know, that would make a really great band name. You know, it's, it's memorable and, you know, interesting on a number of levels, and it, is, it has served us well over the years. People people don't tend to forget something like that. No, 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 no. It sticks in the membrane. So uh, when you met Peter Evans in 98 at Overlake Conservatory, was it kind of this match that kind of brought this about? What was that meeting like? Uh, I mean, you know, there's, there's, it, we kind of were, you know, uh, two of a group of people, you know, there's, there's a group of people at Oberlin, uh, not just the two of us, who were kind of interested in a really wide variety of things in that we were interested in jazz, but also interested in you know, electronic music and classical music and new music and improvised music and all of that kind of stuff. And so there was a fairly large contingent of musicians you know, interested in like a really wide variety of things, and we kind of like gravitated toward that same circle, and kind of laid the groundwork for the way I think both of us play at this point. As you know, Peter's music and my music both are kind of continuations of that you know very like wide, wide net kind of musical thinking. You know, without a whole lot of boundaries between things. And then that large circle comes together in 2003. You form the band. Talk about the beginnings of this band. What was kind of the philosophy and how all of this kind of came together for you guys? Well, uh, we I moved to New York a year before Peter did and uh, started you know playing with John Aravagon. And when uh, I met John through a mutual friend, John Lundbaum, who we both still play with, he was very clearly like the saxophone player that I wanted to work with because he, you know, can also has like huge wide ranging sensibilities. Um, and then eventually when Peter moved to town, we met Kevin and we met Kevin through Mary Halverson. She introduced us and that kind of core quartet formed. And we didn't really have in the beginning, it was basically just kind of like a, a free jazz quartet modeled on, you know, Ornette Coleman and Masada. And, as we played live more and I wrote more tunes for the band, it became clear that when I would write fairly simple, you know, jazz-based structures that we could take apart very easily, that kind of led to the most interesting music on the bandstand. And so we started playing as a quartet in fall of 2003. And, you know, by like the mid-2000s, we had kind of established this 
style where we would extrapolate and interpolate all kinds of musical influences onto these very loose frameworks of tunes that I would write. You know, it's interesting. The one thing that I noticed in your guys' bio is you guys kind of have a Ringo Starr story. Like, Ringo was the last Beatle, and Kevin Shea was kind of a last-minute replacement. Yeah. How much did he complete the band? How relieving was it to, to, to get someone like him to be kind of the completeness for you guys? Well, it's like, uh, you know, it's like, you know, finding people with like a, you know, like a you know, sympathetic way of thinking and that, you know, Kevin is, you know, very, uh, well, I mean, you know, one thing we all know here in New York and in, you know, the music circles in general, it's like when you hire Kevin, you're not hiring a drummer, you're hiring Kevin in that, like, he's not necessarily going to ever play anything that's put in front of him ever. And that's kind of the exact interpretation or, you know, interpretation of the way we make music in general. And, like, I I don't want to work with musicians who are going to play what I put in front of them. I want to work with musicians who are going to look at what I put in front of them and come up with things that are more interesting than I could have thought of on my own. Kevin naturally tends to do that, and that kind of, like, you know, pushed the other three of us, you know, more solidly in that direction. But that was kind of the direction we were going in anyway. So it's, you know, it's... But yeah, he is, you know, the, the the perfect drummer for the band because, you know, while he can, you know, play, you know, grooves and swing super hard, there's this constant, like, you know, destruction going on, which prevents anything from ever really being solid and kind of ups the risk factor. Whereas, you know, most drummers very kind of consistently and predictably will support and play behind the soloists you know, Kevin is constantly willing to, you know, completely disrupt everything that's going on around him, which forces the rest of us to, you know, be more sure of ourselves and to be more assertive and to create the kind of, like, collages and, you know, simultaneous realities that the band gets into, you know, by, like, 2004, 2005. Wow, that's an interesting dynamic. So it it has been mentioned in your band's bio that there are songs named after... Um, after towns in Pennsylvania. What's that all about? Since I was in college, I've been deeply suspicious of giving titles to instrumental compositions from, you know, classical music to jazz in that it kind of smacks of romanticism with a capital R in that, you know, the kind of like 19th century ideal that like, you know, pure music can tell a story, blah, 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 blah which I don't really buy into because of the abstract nature of music. And so, you know, I kind of realized that, like, you know, you could call a a tune anything you want to. And then, you know, looking at composers like Anthony Braxton, who just attach, you know, numbers to their pieces, or the uh, classical idea of opus numbers is great. Um, And so I, I think that whenever composers give titles to their pieces, you're kind of actively implanting ideas in the mind of the audience before they've even heard any of the music and you're kind of uh, directly affecting the way they're going to perceive the music in not always helpful ways. And so I wanted to pick something completely arbitrary and completely unrelated to music to use for song titles. So I just use Townsend, Pennsylvania for every one of my song titles and that takes care of that problem. (laughs) What is it like to have your own label? I mean, in this music age now, you can kind of run your own show. What is that like? Well, I mean, for us, it was kind of born out of necessity in that when we were starting out, you know, we were not the kind of band that was going to attract, you know, established record labels because, you know, we play fairly, you know, difficult to pin down music in general. And so 
the idea behind that was, well, if we release it ourselves, like, I'll be able to kind of maintain total creative control from, like, the way the album looks to, you know, all the other aspects of it. And, you know, in the 21st century with the Internet and, you know, kind of simplistic distribution that way, the, the I'd be hard-pressed to f- figure out what advantage we would have by being on a label that we don't have on our own, you know, in that, like... I'm able to control the budget. I'm able to, you know, it, it, to spend and invest the money that I feel is necessary for the music, and I'm not under any pressure to, you know, produce a product, in quotes, that will, you know, turn a certain amount of profit because uh, that winds up kind of influencing decisions that artists make, and it also kind of, you know, to my ears anyway, you know, very much like streamlines the the music that's being made right now, and that, like, you know, a whole lot of music out there is is made because it's in a certain style that a certain label thinks is marketable, and I don't necessarily believe that that leads to very good art. Speaking yeah. of art, you all really hit the road pretty well. What do, you, what, what do you guys love performing live, seeing different cities? What is it like to get out on the road? Oh, I mean, I personally dislike uh, traveling a great deal, uh, which is why I stopped being a full-time musician and became a high school teacher, uh, as, you know, the traveling and the kind of, uh, general stresses that are involved in that, uh, aren't really fun for anybody, I don't think. Um, but the actual performing is spectacular, you know? And so if we lived in an era when it was still possible to, you know, go city to city doing one-nighters without, you know, a great deal of travel in between, I'd be all for that. But, you know, spending days and weeks on, you know, planes and trains every day, hours and hours is no fun for anybody. But, you know, that's what you have to do in order to get your music out to people who want to listen to it. So, you know, the actual performing is spectacular, and we love, you know, performing for audiences wherever we can. Uh, It's just that at this point, because of the economics of, you know, the jazz scene, it's very difficult in this country and increasingly difficult in Europe to, you know, put together a string of shows that is A, lucrative, and B, like, you know, manageable on the travel side of things. So, you know, from my perspective anyway, uh, I choose not to do that very often. Uh, in favor of just kind of, you know, playing, you know, here and there, like a tour here and a tour there with lots of times to, time to decompress. I mean, there's a reason why rock bands will go on a, you know, world tour and then disappear for two years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, Absolutely. if it was fun, that wouldn't happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's interesting. You're a high school teacher. Did you, do you like that? Do you like kind of getting into that mode? And, and so the kids know who you are. Obviously, you know the kids well. What's kind of what, what's the symbiosis going on with you guys? I tend to not ever talk about that with my students. Uh, okay. Sometimes they will like you know do a small amount of digging online and figure out what I do outside of here. But you know while I'm here at school, I you know we're we're not focused on what I do. We're focused on you know like. These, you know, most of these kids don't know who Beethoven and Coltrane are, so they don't need to bother with what I'm doing yet. Right. We've got to take care of the foundation first. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that you mentioned teaching. Who has taught you the most about music? Uh, well, definitely my parents. Uh, my parents are huge, you know, jazz and music lovers. And, you know, from before I was born, they had, you know, Miles Davis and Ornett Coleman playing around the house constantly. So I grew up in an environment where I just kind of took all of this music and its, you know, uh, greatness with a capital G for granted. And so, you know, for me, like, you know, I live in a world where 
the most famous, most important people are, you know, Duke Ellington and Charles Mingus and Miles Davis, and those are the people that, like, were talked around, talked about in my house all the time. Uh, so I just kind of take for granted that, you know, everyone should know that these guys are, you know, the most genius musicians that America's ever produced, and so I kind of, like, you know, owe that to my childhood. You know, I lucked out and had, like, great teachers in high school and college, too, but, you know, coming from the, the household with my parents and my parents' friends, that was, like, you know, by far the best education I could have. Yeah, absolutely. So, why do you love jazz? Well, I mean, I never even thought about that. Like, I don't know, <laughs> because it's great. And, like, I mean, like, that's literally never a question that has ever crossed my mind in that, you know, all, you know, that I've just, you know, I've been I've been hearing it and, you know, acknowledging its amazingness, you know, since before I could talk and sit up straight. So, you know, it's like asking somebody, you know, why they think the sky is blue. Right, right, right. You know, it's just like, well, that's just how it is. Well, <laughs> you know, like no, no, no thought is necessary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a part of what you do. So let me ask you this: If you could go back in time and see a jazz show, who would you go see, and where would you go? I mean, a number of places. I mean, my my dad was fortunate enough to he he moved to the New York area when he was 15 in 1959, and his parents let him you know go out whenever he wanted to. So. You know, the number of things that he heard that I'm jealous of is pretty extreme. I mean, he he heard the Bill Evans trio with Scott LaFaro at the Vanguard. He sat in on Mingus's rehearsals for Black Saint and the Sinner Lady. Uh, he heard Ornette Coleman. Uh, he used to go hear Coltrane at the Five Spot with the classic quartet. He just, you know, saw, you know, Miles Davis play, you know, with multiple bands throughout the 60s, you know, on and on and on and on and on. That's cool. So let me ask you this. What's the future of the band? If we talk... We hook up in 10 years from now, and I ask you, what's going on with the band? What are you going to want to tell me? Oh, well, I hope, you know, we're still kind of, you know, b- pushing for new things. Like, at, th- at this point, you know, coming off of a tour, I mean, we're we're still at a point as a band where every night when we play, you know, new things happen that have never happened before on every single gig. So, you know, we're not even remotely near repeating ourselves. We're still in a phase where every night has new explorations and new ideas. And we just played last night and, like, you know, several things that had never happened before happened in both sets. And that's what's really exciting about the band. And so kind of my greatest fear is to just get to a point where we're, you know, revisiting ideas that we've had in the past. And so, you know, hopefully 10 years from now, we're still, you know, constantly coming up with, with new things from the bandstand, and, you know, I'm composing new pieces, and, you know, that's the whole, that, 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 that would be the, the goal. Right on. Matthew, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Anytime, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over America, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Mappa for his time, passion, and inventive tunes. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.